Today, we want to continue in the study of the book of Acts. Uh, this morning, we come to Acts chapter 19. Some really exciting stuff in this chapter. Luke uh, gave us a gospel of the story of Jesus, his life and ministry, and then his death and resurrection. But the story did not stop there. Luke continues the story in his second volume, the book of Acts how the followers of Jesus began to take that gospel into the world, how Christianity sort of exploded onto the scene of the Roman Empire. And now uh, this gospel movement has come to the great city of Ephesus. So we want to begin reading in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Uh, Luke tells us, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so we see tongues happen again here with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Tongues only mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19. All happening in special circumstances as the gospel came to unique groups of people who finally received the full gospel message. These occasions, uh, not prescriptive, but descriptive. Peter, uh, Paul, and John, in all their writings, which is the bulk of the New Testament, say nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit accompanied by tongues. The message is simple. Repent and believe. And when you do, the Holy Spirit automatically indwells you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Uh, more explanation of, of tongues in the sermons on chapter 2 and chapter 10 if you want to go back and listen to those. Let's uh, continue it with verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, uh, church at Ephesus, uh, as we're reading here, uh, founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary trip, after spending 18 months in Corinth, uh, he visited Ephesus with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, stayed in Ephesus for a short time, but left Aquila and Priscilla there to help uh, get the church established. On his third mission trip, Paul returned, this time staying for approximately three years. Best we can tell, uh, some really amazing things happened. Paul, by this time approximately 50 years old, he's an old man in terms of first century lifespan. He's in, you know, we might say his final season of ministry, uh, training younger guys. And so he moves his ministry center to a lecture hall called the Hall of Tyrannus for the purpose of training the next generation of leaders for church planting gospel movement. And Ephesus, a strategic city for this to happen, largest city in Asia Minor, one of the seven wonders of the world is there, Temple of Artemis, a central hub connecting uh, east with the west. Uh, verse 10 says this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Okay, that is not normal. Even though you might see a TV evangelist claim this kind of power and mail you a hanky and charge you for it, which is a red flag, don't believe it. This was very unique during the apostolic period. In fact, if you want to hold your place here, I do invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And we see some uh, important things uh, uh, said about the apostles. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, we read, "...the things that mark an apostle." In other words, things that set them apart from everyone else. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. Now, we're talking here about capital A, apostle. You know, the 12 uh, Jesus chose minus Judas plus Paul. The ones Jesus commissioned with authority, and that authority validated through signs and wonders. And this is one of those moments. Verse 13, we read on. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I, I love that Luke inserts this story. A reminder that the name of Jesus is not to be used in some type of spiritual incantation, you know, magic. Lots of magic, actually, in the city of Ephesus. Ancient magic characterized by rituals and magic spells and the reciting of names to manipulate spiritual powers. This is what the seven sons of Sceva are doing, just like the culture around them. And people do this today. I've been told, you know, just say the name of Jesus or just sing the song, There's Power in the Name of Jesus, which is not uncompletely true, but often used as if it were magic. Not good. The power is in the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. And many were hearing that and believing and changing. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, uh, sermon series title, You Will Be My Witnesses. And when that begins to happen through the life of a church and lives are changed, this kind of thing becomes known to all the residents of Boone. Oh, Oh, it didn't say that. It said to all the residents of Ephesus, but it could read that way. And how amazing would that be? And here's how that could happen. Let's read on a crazy story. We've already read several crazy stories, but here's a crazier story. And we'll focus here for the rest of our time. Verse 21. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, concerning Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. This guy is pretty worked up. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Azarachs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. That always is comical to me. They're in there. Why are you here? I don't know. Well, why are you here? I don't know. I just know I'm mad. Well, that's kind of the way it was here. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, talking about an actual meteor that had fallen that they had put in the shrine. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you speak any further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, there's a lot here. But here's the main thing I want us to focus on. The main thing, when we think of you will be my witnesses and this gospel movement becoming known to all the residents of Boone, it's important to see that Paul was always concerned about the idols of the culture around him. He's not afraid to point that out, to confront idolatry, including the idols of the heart. So we want to do three things as we look at this part of the story. We want to talk about, uh, first of all, identifying idols. What are they? Secondly, exposing idols. I mean, they can be very subtle. They can be hidden. You know, where are they? And then third, removing idols. What do we do with them? 
Identifying idols, exposing idols, and removing idols. First of all, identifying idols. Look back at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so how did he preach the gospel? If, if you look here and read this, you see that Paul preached the gospel in such a way that it produced significant change in people who responded to the gospel. The, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, a gift we receive simply by faith in him. But in order to create an openness to that message, Paul went after idols. He went after the idols of the city. Meaning when people were converted, it changed the way they lived and affected the culture around them. We had a lady in in the church I pastored in Des Moines who started coming to our church, heard the gospel and responded. She had been a meth addict for 40 years. Here's the thing. Her best friend was her dealer. She was that immersed in that culture. The gospel changed the way she lived and radically impacted the culture around her, her family culture, the drug culture in which she lived. I mean, meth was an idol in her life. When she met Jesus, everything changed. So Paul goes into a city like Ephesus and confronts idols. How? Well, interesting, Demetrius, the silversmith, gives us a great summary in his accusation of Paul. Listen again to what he says. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Wow. If, if, if the people, I thought about this, if the people around us can describe our Christianity that well, we're doing a pretty good job. This was the pattern of Paul. You've already seen it in, in, in the study of Acts. Throughout the story of Acts, you know, most significant occasion, Acts chapter 17 in the city of Athens. Basically, he said in the city of Athens, as he looked around, all these gods around you, not gods at all. Okay, so... As we think about it today, 21st century, United States, you know, Boone, Iowa, the question, what are the cultural idols around us? What do people worship? Here's the deal. People are looking to something to save them, to rescue them. This is the essence of idolatry, things that take the place of God. It could be money, beauty, sex, power. It's interesting, the idols of the day the first century reflected the idols of the heart, the, the beauty gods, the sex gods, the money gods. And Artemis would be an example. Artemis, uh, the goddess of business, goddess of the moon, the hunt, the fertility. Because she was the goddess of fertility, she was the goddess of the ground, which produced the harvest, which impacted business and commerce. And people sacrificed their children to her in order for their business to prosper and make more money. That's what people do with gods. And think about it. People do that today. 
People can sacrifice. Listen, people, think about it. People can sacrifice their children on the altar of money and career success when it becomes an idol. Pretty bold for Paul to openly identify and point out this idol in which the people worship. Listen again to the city clerk, verse 27. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So again, what are the idols of today? Might refer to it as soul idolatry. Bowing down to something in our heart. Maybe not something made out of wood or stone, but something in our heart. And, and, and listen, we can make anything an idol. Anything we worship. The things that begin to consume our hearts. Looking at some created thing to give us what only God can give us. We can think of idolatry this way. Idolatry is taking something that is good. Uh, you know, back in Genesis, God created everything and said it, it, it was good. We Taking those good things and making idols out of them. Food is good. Fitness is good. Family is good. But they can become idols. They can become gods in our life. I know a lady that so idolized her family. Uh, this developed into unhealthy attachments and codependency. Never learned how to properly release her children. Continued to micromanage them into their adult life. She actually, by doing that, drove them away. Listen, family is good. I absolutely love my family, but it can actually become an idol. I know someone who lost their marriage and family over fitness. I love fitness. I ride my bike a lot. But uh, this person became so consumed with fitness that it became an obsession. And after several years of that, many years of that, their spouse finally said, I've had enough. I'm leaving. People idolize money, they idolize work and career, they idolize relationships, success, they idolize the need for acceptance or control. The list is almost endless. Tim Keller describes it this way, an idol is anything that becomes so central to your life that if you lose it, you have no meaning to your life. Wow. It's pretty profound. There are a lot of people in Boone who are living this way. And they need the gospel to discover that what they are really searching for, the thing that will bring true meaning and purpose to their life, is not beauty or success or more money or a perfect marriage or family or the perfect job or career, but Jesus. Be, being a witness involves identifying idols, first in our own hearts and then in the culture around us. And not only that, number two, exposing idols. Look again at verse 26, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Did, did you notice that when idols are exposed, there is chaos? <laughs> I mean, interesting, the idols never truly satisfy, but if they're exposed or taken away, people get really mad. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Listen, you will be my witnesses, 
sometimes means exposing the idols in people's lives, the things people are putting all their worth and value in, the the thing that has become central to them. And when we do that, they might get upset. I remember exposing the idol of comfort in the life of a man. He idolized comfort, meaning if things weren't comfortable, if people around him did not accommodate him, do things his way, he would get mad. His world would come apart. He asked me one time, what's wrong with me? Why don't people like me? As I spoke the gospel into his life, I had to expose the idol of comfort. He got mad at me. Didn't talk to me for a year, but came back a year later. Began talking about the work God had done in him. He had changed. It was so evident. This is what the gospel does when we confront the idols that are blocking gospel work in the life of someone. Sometimes God points out idols in my own heart, uses people or circumstances to do that. And I don't like it, but I need it. And maybe that's a question to just kind of pause and ask, what are the idols in my own heart right now? Are there any? And are you allowing God or other people to expose them? Are we willing to graciously and with compassion, not only recognize the the idols in our own heart, but expose the idols in others as we point people to Jesus? which is actually the third thing, number three, removing idols. What what, what do we do with them? How do we remove idols? Well, it's pretty simple. Through the gospel, through Jesus, the one thing, the one person we were created to worship. When we and those around us understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us and respond to faith, idols are removed. When that reality breaks through and we find our ultimate joy in Him, when we begin to live a Christ-centered life, it sets us free from the idols in our heart. Jesus came to give what the idols can't give. Unconditional love. Man, we all crave that. Grace and forgiveness. We want to know that our sins have been forgiven. He, He gives new life, a new identity, a new beginning, new meaning and purpose, hope and healing. Again, an idol is anything that becomes so central to our life that if we lose it, we have no meaning in our life. And there, again, are a lot of people in Boone who are living this way. And they need the gospel to discover that what they are really searching for, the thing that will truly bring meaning and purpose to their life is not beauty or success or money or the perfect family, or the perfect job or career or more power, more control, but Jesus. Interesting, we don't have a sermon in chapter 19, but we do in chapter 17 when Paul confronted the idols in Athens. And here's an excerpt from his idol-exposing sermon in Athens, chapter 17, if you want to look there. And we'll finish here. Acts chapter 17, I just want to read uh, verses 29, 30, and 31 to kind of capture the essence of what he says in this sermon. Verse 29 in Acts chapter 17, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And that man is the eternal Son of God, Jesus, 
the Savior of the world, the one who came to this world to save us from our sin and brokenness and give us new life. In the simple question, has that happened to you? Have you received that gift simply by faith in him? And not only you, not only your own life, not only have you made that decision, but what about those around you? We had an individual start coming to our Celebrate Recovery, life filled with the idols of sex and drugs. And and although those idols can look so promising and bring temporary relief to the stress and anxiety we experience in this life, in this broken world, they did not satisfy, left this person empty. But then they met Jesus. They heard the gospel. They responded in repentance and faith, and God gave his grace and forgiveness. And they began the process of change, not the removal of every problem, but now it's different. With Jesus at the center, they have hope, they have purpose, they have new life. Everything now is seen through the lens of the one they worship, Jesus. What about you? What about those around you. This is the message that the people in Boone need to hear. And God wants to use you as a church to communicate that message in this gospel movement that he's doing right now in the world. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the hope and healing, the forgiveness that we find in him. Thank you for the meaning and purpose when we make Jesus the center of our life. I pray that that message would not only change us, but would inspire us and motivate us to spread this message, to truly be your witnesses, to be bold and to reach out into people that might look like they have it all together as they're chasing cultural idols, but really don't. On the inside, they're empty and they're broken. Help us to see past the facade and the masks that people wear and really take them to the only one who can truly satisfy, and that is Jesus. I pray uh, for Stonebridge that you would just bless Stonebridge in their efforts to continue to reach their, their town with the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.